Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for those nice words, Pastor. It's a pleasure to be here with you, uh, seeing brothers dwell in unity. The Spirit of the Lord is here in this place today. And uh, just want to say a couple things about Pastor Eric. I love being in youth group with him and at the church. He always did such a good job of explaining, this is the Bible, this is what God says, here it is, this is truth. And we need that in the world, don't we? We need truth in our, in our lives, and God gives us the truth, unfiltered uh, in his holy word. Praise the Lord for that, right? <laughs> um, we, need, we need the truth. And uh, let's read from God's word. I'd ask you to stand as we read from God's holy word. Uh, first, we'll read Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, for an Old Testament reading. Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Amen. And I'd ask you to turn in your Bible to the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, and we'll read verses 9 to 14. Luke, chapter 18. Verses 9 to 14. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to bless it now. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we come into your presence again this day and we open your word, Lord, we thank you for that gift of light and truth that you've sent us in your word, in your Son, and in your Spirit, oh God. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to fill us, uh, Lord, to, to show us the way Illumine your word to us now and show us the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. Oh Lord, show us Jesus. 
Open our hearts now. Create faith where there is no faith, and where there is faith, O Lord, strengthen us. We pray this all in your name and to your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, have you ever been judged before, judged wrongly, snap judgment, you know, somebody judges you. I remember a few years back, my brother and I had the chance to take a road trip, and we went out west, and we had a lot of fun. We were going around seeing some national parks, really great trip, and we went to Utah. We got to go see Bryce Canyon, and if you get the chance to go to Bryce Canyon, you got to go. You got to see it. It's amazing. This red sandstone canyon, uh, and then there's these spires that stick up. They call them hoodoos, and it's swept by the wind. Very beautiful, amazing. And if you've been to national parks, you probably know, uh, a lot of people there are not from America. You hear a lot of different languages being spoken, and we're, we're there, we feel like we're the only Americans, except we hear this familiar accent. <laughs> A few older women, they were talking like this, and we, we could tell, oh, they must be from New York or New Jersey, so we decided, let's go talk to them, see uh, who these people are. Hey, are you, uh, are you from New York? And they say, yeah, yeah, we're from New York. And we go, oh, we are too. Oh, where in New York are you from? And they say, oh, it's a small town. You never heard it. We're from Orange County. They say, oh, we're from Orange County too. And we say, oh, no kidding. What town? And we said, Minisink. Oh, Minisink, where from? And it was a town 10 minutes away, and they just looked at us like, ah, Minisink. <laughs> you know, I can't believe you're, you're halfway around the country, you know. It was pretty funny. We got a good chuckle out of it, a good laugh. Uh, it felt like just getting snubbed. And it doesn't matter what town they were from. I won't, I won't mention the name. But I'm sure that happens around here, too. People look down on you because you're from, oh, you're from there. You're from here. And, you know, it was funny, but you can imagine it being a lot more serious, right? People judge all the time. Oh, you went to school there. Oh, you didn't go to school. Oh, that's your family. That's the color of your skin. You can imagine people judge all the time. And why do we do it? We want to make ourselves feel better by putting others down, making them feel small. It makes me feel tall when you're small. That's why we do it. It's a small way to live. And Christ comes to us today in this parable, and he says, don't do that. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better way. This parable teaches us that we're all sinners, you know, I don't know you guys, I've never met most of you, but I know something about each and every one in this room. Every single one of you is a sinner. Some of you are sneaky sinners, and some of you are bold sinners, but you are a sinner. Every human being on this earth, save one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sinner. Some of us are tax collectors, some of us are Pharisees, but everybody is a sinner, and there's only one Savior. Jesus Christ is a big enough Savior for sinners. That's the point of the parable. And we'll look at that in three points. First, we'll look together at the self-righteous Pharisee. 
from verses 9 to 12, the self-righteous Pharisee. Then we'll look at the unrighteous tax collector, the unrighteous tax collector, verses 13 and 14. And then finally, I want us to dwell on the great reversal that the gospel brings, the great reversal that the gospel brings. You know, as you open the passage, one thing you can say about Christ is that he is not afraid of confrontation whatsoever. It becomes immediately apparent in verse 9. He saw something, and he said something to the people. Now, he didn't just tell this parable to the inner circle of disciples that he was with. He told it to the crowd, right? The people that he was with, the people doing the deed, he tells them this parable. He's not doing it behind their back. No, he tells them. And you can almost imagine him, right? He's there wherever this was, and he sees some snobbery going on, perhaps. And he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And you have to wonder, you know, what did the crowd think when Christ began speaking? They didn't have access to Luke's narration there in verse 9. It just starts off there. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. It's an odd couple. Very odd couple. These two men, very different, and they're going to one very special place. You know, the temple was everything to Jews in those days. The Old Testament. The temple was everything. You know, going to church, that's important, right? We ought to go to church. But, and going to synagogue, that would have been important for Jews too. But going to temple, that's like up here. I mean, that is level 10 important. Going to temple. That was where everything happened. Right? You read the Bible in synagogue, but you didn't have sacrifices there. Sacrifices happened at the temple. It was a special place. It gave a sense of awe and wonder. Showed the holiness of God, and it was a fitting place to pray, as we read at the start of service. And the Pharisee, I mean, this guy, he just really fit in with that temple crowd, didn't he? You can imagine him, you know, he's strutting in there. Like he owns the place. He's the holiest of the holy guys, the holy club. And, uh, you know, in the eyes of the world, that's the way it was. And if we, brothers and sisters, if we in this church were living in Bible times, I wonder, would we be tempted to think that the Pharisees were the theological good guys? Would they be our theological heroes? Would we have posters of Rabbi so-and-so of the Pharisees on our church walls? You say, oh, well, we know Jesus said there were problems with the Pharisees, and there are, but let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Let me show you what's going on here. The Pharisees, they were the ones in Bible times that took the Bible seriously. I mean, they took it so seriously that they memorized whole swaths of Scripture. That's a good thing, right? Memorizing your Bible, that's great, good. We ought to do that. They set up Bible schools. For people to study the scriptures, good. You know, Bible college is good. We ought to support things like that, studying the Bible. Very good. And they took the law very seriously. They looked at what was going on. Why are these Romans oppressing us? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because we disobeyed. We weren't serious 
about obeying the law. Let's get serious about obedience. Should we be serious about obedience? Absolutely. We ought to be serious about obeying God. That's a good thing. They took it so far that they even invented extra laws. Yeah. And they had their doctrinal ducks in a row. They were the theological conservatives of their day. You see, they were duking it out with these liberals called the Sadducees. The, liberal, uh, the Sadducees wanted to play fast and loose with the Bible. Uh, the Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection of the body. The Pharisees said, oh no, there is a resurrection of the body. The Bible teaches that. And we would say, yeah, we agree. There is a resurrection of the body, amen? The Sadducees denied that there were spirits or angels. The Bible teaches there is. The Pharisees said, yeah, there are spirits. There are angels. We agree, amen? And the Sadducees denied a lot of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They threw the rest out. <laughs> they what? The Pharisees said, no, we believe in the whole Old Testament. Well, we agree, amen? Yeah, we, we believe the Old Testament. That's God's word. And so, you know, if you were living in those times, and these are the two big parties, if you will, in church, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I wonder, would we be tempted to think that the Pharisees were the good guys? I wonder. Of course, we know that they had other problems. Christ is pretty explicit about that. But then you get a load of the piety on this guy, too. I mean, come on. How much better is this Pharisee than his neighbors? He's head and shoulders above his peers, isn't he? Why, when he prays, would he try to hide that from God after? I mean, come on, he's, he's the real deal. And if this Pharisee is anything like the other Pharisees, you don't think he'd, uh, he'd mind if the rest of the church sat in and listened to his prayer life, do you? Jesus tells us elsewhere that the Pharisees, oh, they love to have the long, fancy robes. Right? They'd go to synagogue, sit right in the front pew. You know, they had the best seat in the house so everybody could see. These guys are holy. They'd pray really long, ornate, fancy prayers meant to impress everybody. <laughs> Listen to how holy I am. And uh, you get the picture of this guy. He's praying there, his hands outstretched to heaven, you know, the most sincere, holy squint on his face. Oh, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I tithe all that I get. And you know, if you're looking at the, uh, the outward performance, those are not bad credentials, are they? We shouldn't be extortioners. We shouldn't be unjust adulterers, should we? Of course not. Anybody an extortioner here today? Show of hands. How many extortioners do we have in the room today? Of course not. Nobody wants to say they're an extortioner. The elders would want to talk to you. We ought to stay far from sin, shouldn't we? Keep away from sin. Don't go near it. And the Pharisees saying, hey, I've stayed away from these 
gross sins. But not only has he stayed away from gross sins, look at all the good he's doing. In the Old Testament, Israel was required to fast how many days a year? One. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This guy's saying, I don't just fast once a year, I fast twice a week. He's 110 times better than the required amount of fasting. Fasting's a good thing to do. And not only that, he tithes everything. And he's fastidious about it. You know, these Pharisees, they're tithing the mint and the cumin they're pulling out of their garden. I mean, we should tithe, right? Nothing wrong with tithing, nothing wrong with fasting. Those are good things. And he's checking all the boxes. You know, if you were picking out your dream team for church, would we be tempted to say this is the guy? I mean, compared to the tax collector, it's no contest for the dream team church. He's the churchman extraordinaire. The tax collector, he's exhibit A in his argument for his own justification by self, his own righteousness, his own performance. You know, if God's not impressed, I'm sure everybody else in the room was. And, uh, you know, I think one of the keys to the story is to understand the subject of this man's prayer. This Pharisee, he's there in the midst of the temple, you know, super high ceilings, gold-plated everything, incense all around, sacrifices, pageantry. And what's he doing there? Should have brought him to his knees to see the holiness of God. And yet he's standing there in the temple trying to get God to stand in awe of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy am I. The train of my robe fills the temple with glory. That's what he's saying. He just wants God to notice him. Reward me for all I'm doing for you. I know you need me to do it for you. It's foolish, blasphemous thoughts. He's got a false standard of righteousness that he's comparing himself to. And that's always going to lead to pride. Always. Being good or righteous, it needs to stand up to God's standard, not the neighborhood standard. You know, this guy, he's, uh, he's hanging a painting on the wall. Right? But the, the roof of his house, it's caving in. The foundation is crumbling. But that painting, it's straight. You know, that's what he's doing. What a different story when you get to that tax collector here. We move in to the second point. Look at the tax collector. This guy, I mean, he is the scum of the earth by all appearances. You know, boys and girls, we would look at him and say, oh, he's yucky. This is a yucky man, the tax collector. Ooh. Tax collectors, they were absolutely hated in Bible times because they were seen as sellouts and traitors. They'd make their money by overcharging their countrymen and their families on behalf of their Roman oppressors. It was really just a slimy way to live, and everybody knew that. Just slimy. And, you know, today, we don't have Roman oppressors. This guy's not an IRS agent. But we do have notorious sinners, don't we? 
We have people who we look at and we say, ooh, don't know about that one. And I wonder, who is this guy today for you and me? type of sinner you look at and you say, oh, don't know about that one. I'll tell you who he is for me. He's the guy that you see on the news pushing surgery and pushing pills for children. That's the type of sinner. That's the level of sin Christ is talking about. That type of notorious sin. The type of sin that makes you squirm and feel uncomfortable when you see it. That's the type of person Christ is talking about. And I wonder, if he were to walk in here, would we be tempted to pray the prayer of the Pharisee? Are we not tempted to pray the Pharisee's prayer when we see that man on the news? God, I thank you that that's not me. I thank you that that is not me. How many times have we been tempted to pray that prayer? During the evening news, during coffee break. I wonder if he walked in the sanctuary here one Sunday morning, would he find a million eyes locked on him, judging him? Or would he see the loving eyes of Jesus Christ who was judged for sinners just like him? What will they find when they come? Because, brothers and sisters, it would have been just that awkward when the tax collector showed up at the temple, wouldn't it have been? This guy didn't belong there. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew his business. This guy was a piece of work. He was a notorious sinner. He didn't belong, but he was humbled by that. He was humbled by that. And Luke gives us four signs of that humility. First, we see together that uh, he stands afar off when he prays. He didn't dare just, you know, waltz into the temple like he owned the place. No, he stood afar off. Couldn't get so close to all that holiness. Presumed God's acceptance. Secondly, he didn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, let alone his hands. I mean, this guy, he's like groveling at God's feet. That's the idea. Couldn't make eye contact. And third, Luke tells us that what? He beat his breast. Sign of contrition. Sign of humility. Not lifting his hands. He's busy beating the culprit. Here's the problem. This is where sin comes from. It's not my education. It's not my environment. It's not any of that. I am the problem. I am the culprit. If I could get a hold of this fount of sin and iniquity in my heart, oh, what I would do. And then fourth, finally, we see his humility there in his confession. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So simple, and it says everything, doesn't it? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't try to hide behind any you know, so-called good that he's done. He's not, you know, trying to bargain with God. Oh, well, let me tell you, you know, I, I know I screwed up. I know I'm a tax collector. I know I sinned, but I said my prayers this morning. I served at the soup kitchen. I gave blood. Hey, you know what? I went to church this week. That ought to count for something, right, God? He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to hide behind anything. 
be merciful to me, the sinner. And he calls on God to be merciful, to atone, to propitiate, is what the text is saying, on his behalf. He's asking for God to sacrifice on his behalf, cover his sins, take the wrath that his sins deserve. He's asking not for any reward, but simply for mercy and forgiveness. Maybe this man just read the Ten Commandments and was astounded by how far short of the glory of God he fell in his sin. Or maybe it was just the sight of the temple, right? Seeing the holiness of that building left him dumbfounded. The glorious splendor, the beauty of holiness. Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean hands. I've robbed the poor and the widow to line my own pockets. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Notice what the text doesn't say this man did. It does not say that before he came to the temple, he made sure he paid back all his victims. It doesn't say that. I'm sure he did afterwards, but not before. He's not fit to come to the temple when he came. It doesn't even say that this guy, you know, he took a shower, put a tie on, used a breath, nothing, nothing like that. The picture we get is he is undone, he's unkempt. It doesn't even show that he tried to clean himself up before he came to the temple that day. In fact, we see the opposite. He's not trying to put a little band-aid on the wounds that his sins have caused. This man was dying of gunshot wounds, and he throws himself into the ER of God's mercy. That's what he's doing. Friends, I'm not trying to tell you that some sins aren't worse than others. Not a sin equalizer, not for a moment. Some sins are more serious. Some sins are heavier than others. We need to be very sure about that. That's obvious, but there is no such thing as a light sin. There is no such thing as a little sin. God takes it so seriously, you have a doubt about it, look to the cross. That's how serious God takes sin. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our sakes, for our sins. Every sin will kill you. Every sin is worthy of eternal hellfire and damnation. And no good that we do in this life is worthy of heaven. It's not for us here in this place to stand up and judge. It's for God to judge the world and for us to be judged by God. It's not our place to stand up from the defendant's seat and then walk over to the judge's bench. Or worse yet, join the accuser of the brethren over at the prosecution stand. That's what the Pharisee did, isn't it? No, we need to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God's court, just like the tax collector did. The parable ends, then, with the tremendous reversal that the gospel brings to this situation, the, the great reversal of the gospel. Jesus tells us that the tax collector, the notorious sinner, went home not only forgiven, but the text tells us he was justified, and the Pharisee wasn't. The tax collector had only asked for mercy, 
But Jesus is saying, God did more than just atone for his sins. He's counted him righteous. He's been justified. Jesus told us that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. But here we see Jesus tell us that that terrible sinner, the tax collector, in a moment was justified. Was justified. And now I want to zoom in on something that's very exciting. It's going to wake us up. Grammar. Grammar. There's a little grammar here this morning. Uh, that word justified is a verb. It's a verb. It's an action word. And we notice it's passive in its sense. It's passive. And you know, that's very exciting stuff, I know. I can see we're all very excited by it's a passive verb. What's the big deal about justified being passive? Well, it's a huge deal. A verb can have an active meaning, which means that is something you or I actively do by ourselves. We actively justify ourselves. That's what the Pharisee was trying to do in his prayer. He was trying to actively justify himself before God Almighty. But here we read that the tax collector was passively justified, meaning it was done to him by another. He did not do it. He rested passively and was justified. He was made righteous, declared righteous, acted upon by God. It means that God did it. He didn't do it. Salvation is of the Lord, not ourselves. Not what our hands have done can save my guilty soul. No, no. Christ's hands have done it. It means God heard his prayer for mercy. God not only forgave this man, man, but counted him a guilty sinner though he was, by his own admission, as righteous with a righteousness that wasn't his own. He was given a gift far beyond what he could have ever imagined in his humble dreams of humility. It means salvation is by grace and grace alone. Jesus explains that those who exalt themselves or though he will, God will exalt those who humble themselves and humble those who exalt themselves. And that's the point of the parable. That's the tagline at the end. And we might be tempted then to get away from that teaching that we're passively justified. We might say, well, are we actually justified by humility? Does my humility end up justifying me. Brothers, sisters, I'd like to ask you, just how humble do you have to be to be justified by God? Are you humble enough? No. You're living up to your neighborhood standards. You may be more humble than your neighbor, but your humility is nowhere near humble enough for God. That is good news, amen? Your repentances brothers and sisters, they are not even close <laughs> to good enough for God. You need to repent of your repentances because it's all stained with sin. Everything we do 
in this life is stained with sin. We ought to repent. We ought to be humble. But we ought not put our hope in humility or repentance. We need to keep our eyes on God's perfect standard of righteousness, not our own. Not for a minute. And that reminds me, you know, we need to get clear about one other thing in this parable. The, the obvious contrast between the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that, that just sticks out like a sore thumb. But there's one other thing we need to look at, and that's the setting of this story. Both men went to the temple to pray. And the temple wasn't just the place of prayer. It was, in a sense, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the temple, in a sense, was the mediator of prayer. We read 1 Kings 8, that long reading, at the beginning of worship this morning. And we see Solomon, after they built the temple, he's praying, dedicating the temple to the Lord. And the language that was used there, it's striking, isn't it? What did Solomon say? If the people humble themselves, wherever they are, they've sinned, they've been taken into exile, if the foreigners would humble themselves and look toward the direction of the temple, if they would pray towards your house, hear their prayer. They were looking to the temple. The temple was the mediator between heaven and earth, in a sense, provisionally, provisionally. Of course, we know that they were not saved by a brick-and-mortar building in the Middle East. No one was saved by the blood of bulls and goats. That never atoned for sin. But that temple pointed forward to the true temple, the heavenly temple. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose flesh is the veil into the Holy of Holies, the new and living way into the presence of God. Jesus Christ destroyed that brick-and-mortar temple, and he was raised three days later, never to be replaced. He did everything that the temple did provisionally so that we can go straight to our Father. He is the only mediator between God and man. There is no other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ. If we would pray, but by looking to Jesus Christ, God will hear us. If we go to Him humbly, trusting the promises that He's given us in His Word, He will forgive us because He's promised to based upon what He did on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. More than that, He'll freely justify and count his righteousness as yours. It's good news. It's good news. But you know, there's something else that uh, it hit home for me. Lord really put an arrow in my heart as I was studying this. Many people, brothers and sisters, will come to Jesus just like the Pharisee went to the temple that day. Very possible. Many people will come to the temple to pray. They'll gaze upon Christ as he's hanging there upon the cross, the most magnificent cathedral you could ever imagine. 
And as he's bleeding on behalf of the sins of the world, they will say to him, God, I thank you that you've given me so much humility as the blood is dripping down from the crown of thorns. Thank you for the humility that you've given me. I'm so humble as they look upon the one who is humbled to the point of death, even death upon a cross for sinners. Humility is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. But without the cross, brothers and sisters, even our virtues become vices. These people will come to the true temple. They'll look at the cross. But then as they're gathered there on Calvary, they're building a little self-righteous shrine in Calvary's backyard. They'll exalt themselves for a time, but that little self-righteous shrine to their own humility will be destroyed and they will be humbled. And Brothers, sisters, I am convinced that we all do this to an extent. I'm convinced that we all are part Pharisee in our heart. Sometimes we're more obvious about it than others. But uh, more often than not, I think our prayers are something like, God, I thank Thee that I'm not the Pharisee here in Your parable this morning. I thank You that I was so good, that I knew exactly where this parable was going, and You didn't lay a glove on me. I dodged every punch. I've heard Your call to humility and I've obeyed. I'm not exhibit A in this story. That's not me. And we end up boasting in our own humility, our own obedience. Brothers and sisters, we forget why Christ told the parable in the first place. Some were self-righteous and treated others with contempt. You know, we can do that to the Pharisee just as easily as he could do it to the tax collector, can't we? We can do it to the tax collector too, but we can do it to the Pharisee just as easily. The point of the story is not to puff us up. The point of the story is to point us to Jesus who can save anybody. So instead of boasting in ourselves, our humility, any of this. Let's boast in Jesus Christ and Him crucified on behalf of sinners. Let's boast in the cross. Let's really go to the temple and pray and ask for mercy this day. Let us go to Jesus Christ. If you are afflicted by sin this morning, we're all sinners. If you are afflicted by sin, you are haunted by the skeletons in the closet, the things that keep you up at night. You wake up in a cold sweat. You think back on the things you've done. If anybody knew what I did, they would never look at me the same again. Those type of sins. Tax collector sins. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus Christ is here and He offers rest and salvation to you today. Come to Him. Come to Him. He will give you rest. 
Maybe you're here today and you're afflicted by another type of sin. Maybe you're here today and you've been looking down your nose at everybody else. You're a sneaky sinner. You're not a bold sinner. You're a Pharisee. I have good news for you too. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Even Pharisaical sinners who look down their nose at everybody else. Give up your pride. Come to the cross. Jesus Christ is here today for you. He offers salvation and assurance to you this day. Come to the cross. Come to Jesus, all the ends of the earth, and live. Are you a Pharisaical sinner? Jesus died for Pharisaical sinners. Come to him. Rest in the cross. Brothers and sisters, we are all sinners. No matter what stripe of sin afflicts you, Christ's blood is good enough to cover it. Amen? It is not the one who fell upon his own humility or his own obedience that went home justified in Christ's parable. It was the one who fell upon the mercy of the mediator that went home justified that day. You want to know what true humility is? This is true humility. It's falling upon Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross and resting in him. That is true humility. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you that you so loved the world, that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever, whatever sins have afflicted them in the past, whosoever would believe would have eternal life. Oh God, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that our hands only add to our sin every single day. Even our righteousness in this life is as filthy rags, oh God. We boast in nothing else save your finished work upon the cross. Come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit now. Apply uh, your blood to our hearts, we pray. May you be our righteousness, our only boast in life and death. Strengthen us, build us up, cause us to quit trying to rely on ourselves. Remove every exit except the cross, and may we come, just as we are, all our sin, all the filth that clings so closely, and may we be washed by you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The words will be up. Uh, it is a hymn and a hymnal, Just As I Am. So we'll sing Just As I Am. Just as I am without one plea But that thy blood shed for me and that thou biddest me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I come 
just close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Be blessed.